Greetings. Today is September 1st, 2021. My name is Christopher Hoster, and I'm the founder and executive director of Opus One Berks Chamber Choir. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the second season of Opus One's podcast entitled Octavo, which airs on the first of the month. The podcast will cover pertinent topics related to the world of choral music and focus on issues that are affecting our artistic community. We will highlight important events taking place throughout Berks County and spotlight people and organizations who are having an impact. Each podcast will have a main theme and will feature guests with knowledge in that particular area. Joining me today is Scott Tice, and Debbie has been visiting Maine and is also dealing with uh, puppy and grandson issues, so she has she's off for this podcast. So thanks for joining me again, Scott. You're welcome. Our first podcast back in March, all the way back in March, it feels like a lifetime ago, was entitled Impact of COVID-19 on the Arts. And we interviewed representatives from Berks Arts and Reading Musical Foundation. And we discussed how local music organizations and music students were coping with the pandemic, also music teachers, music teachers and music students. We also discussed what long-term implications COVID might have on the artistic community in and around the Reading area. Today, we revisit that topic. The New York Times is, Times is reporting that in the last week, the US daily average for COVID-19 hospitalizations now exceeds 100,000. That's higher than any previous surge except for last winter, which was before most Americans were eligible to receive the vaccine. This is an increase of nearly 500% in just the past two months. Deaths have risen to more than 1,000 a day. Florida reports that 16,500, almost 16,500 people are currently hospitalized with COVID. These increasingly disturbing numbers are causing a shortage of available ICU beds. This month, one in five ICUs in the nation has, have reached or exceeded 95% of bed capacity. And now it was reported yesterday and today, I actually just read a report uh, right now as before I came uh, recorded this podcast that the EU has now restricted uh, travel from those from the US from those visiting from the United from the United States. And then also on August 23rd a report uh, from the group Americans for the Arts shows that through cultural activities, um, though they are returning the recovery is much slower than other sectors of the economy. The 1.3 million job loss in the arts industry, which is a decline of 53%, have contributed to an average job loss in nonprofit or art organizations, more than four times the average of all nonprofits. Now, this report also showed a loss of 557 billion in ticketed admissions to art events. However, there is a glimmer of hope. The same report also showed that the percent of art attendees has risen 17% since April with an additional 72% expecting to do so before or by January, 2022. So later in the show, we'll be joined again by reps from the Berks Arts and RMF for an update on the situation and what's happening in our own backyard. But first let's turn to something a little bit more joyful. After more than a year of 100% digital programming, uh, in August, Opus One began its 10th season with in-person rehearsals, thank God, in preparation for our October 17th Broadway dinner concert at the Doubletree Hotel in Reading. Rehearsals are taking place uh, 
After months of research, discussion, uh, and the implementation of logistical precautions by the organization's leadership and our COVID task force. As part of the COVID-19 protocols, Opus One requires singers and audience members alike to be vaccinated. Singers will be masked during all rehearsals and everyone will observe social distancing and good hygiene. Scott, as a board member and singer, uh, you have sort of this unique uh, perspective. So how do you mm -hmm. feel the preparation for a return to in-person singing has gone? And um, how does it feel to be singing uh, with others in person again? Sure. Um, I'm, at, I'm fortunate in the fact that I get to see both sides. So sitting on the board and also being part of uh, the COVID task force, I saw um, how much uh, we put into the implementation of logistical precautions um, that our current members are experiencing every Sunday evening when we meet. Um, I know prior to that, there was uh, speculation of how this would all go and questions. Um, and once we all got together, it's almost like riding a bike. It didn't take us long to get into the groove. Um, you just had to uh, look at how we were sitting versus how we normally would be sitting in a non-COVID um, you know, COVID year. Um, I think if anything, our hearing is going to be a little bit better because you're not necessarily sitting right next to that person. So your, uh, your hearing has to be a little bit more acute when listening um, for the parts that you're singing. I think everyone who um, has come back was welcomed um, by all of our board members and also um, any of our help that we had that evening. Um, it was nice to see everybody. It was nice to be back in session. Um, I certainly felt safe. I think everyone else, we felt safe. And it was um, it was just nice to just sit into an area and look at people's faces, even though they had masks on. And when we first started singing the very first piece that you uh, brought out and, and conducted with us, um, it just sent chills down my spine. And I'm sure it sent chills down other spine because um, it was a very long process for us to get to that point, but was well worth it with all the precautions that we that we took place. Um, anyone that I had talked to since uh, we had started practicing, um, nobody has said anything that they feel unsafe. They feel that everything that we have put in place is going to not only benefit us as singers, but also anybody who comes out to attend any of our concerts as well. That's great. I mean, I, I can also just say, just as the, uh, uh, the conductor, just standing in front of the group um, and having actual voices in front of me, um, it was it was almost a surreal experience um, again, but a very exciting one. So let's just talk for a second about what's in store for uh, Opus One's tenth uh, season. I can't believe that it's ten years uh, that we've that we've been together and doing this and bringing music to Berks County. But it is it's ten years. Um, so our first concert, like I said, is the Broadway dinner concert at Doubletree Hotel. That's gonna be on October 17th, Sunday, October 17th at 5 p.m. The tickets are $60, that includes a meal of your choice. Um, I think there's three options that we have available. Uh, and the purchase deadline for those tickets is October 8th. So uh, that will be our first uh, in-person event in uh, over a year and a half. Maria Demore and Jonathan Reinhold uh, will be singing the solos uh, or a big portion of the solos in that concert. There are headliners for the event. Uh, 
The next concert is on Sunday, December 12th at St. John's Baptist de la Salle in Shillington. That concert's entitled Christmas in Paris. And the, the highlight of the concert will be Saint-Saëns Christmas Oratorio, the Oratorio de Noël. Um, and food donations will be collected at that concert for Helping Harvest. That concert will also be accessible online from December 16th through January 9th. And you can find information about that on our website. In the new year, we have two main events, two main concerts, choral concerts. The first is on Sunday, March 27th at 4 p.m. at Nativity Lutheran Church. That's uh, an echo concert. Our select ensemble will be uh, performing a concert entitled From the Shadows. And that event will be works that come from the German Baroque period, the early Baroque period, um, music of Heinrich Schütz and uh, Schein. That will also be accessible online from April 3rd to April 24th. The last concert of the season will take place on Sunday, May 15th at 4 p.m. at St. John's Baptist de La Salle. That concert will be entitled A Celebration of Rayfon Williams. It's 150 uh, years uh, from his birthday. Um, so what makes that concert extremely uh, cool and interesting is that we will be doing the American premiere of a work from 1899. It was rediscovered in 2011, but uh, wasn't performed uh, in America. Um, and that work's entitled The Garden of Proserpine. But the whole concert will be music of, of Rayfon Williams. Other pieces include the five mystical songs um, with Marcus Deloche, the baritone, uh, singing the, the baritone part in that uh, collection and also the six uh, choral songs um, in uh, times of war. That concert will also be available online May 22nd through June 12th. Other than that, we have um, monthly masterclasses, something that we've started during the virtual season last year. Those will continue this time in person and online. Check the listing for those on our website, www.opus1chamberchoir.com slash monthly masterclasses. Those take place each month. There's going to be one each month, and those are led by leaders in different music fields, such as pedagogy, technique, diction, Alexander technique, um, things like that. We have this podcast, which you're listening to right now, so I, I won't tell you about Opus One Octavo, but we also will do a solo recital, one of our modern salons uh, in the spring on Sunday, February 13th at 4 p.m. And that's gonna be at Nativity Lutheran Church. It's a free recital. We do ask for a $10 donation, but uh, Opus One singers will, uh, and performers, uh, instrumentalists, uh, will wow you, I'm sure, at that concert. Classical, Broadway, jazz, traditional, it's, uh, it's all game for that concert. So come and hear your favorite, your favorite Opus One musician. That's our season 10. So please go online to our website, www.opus1chamberchoir.com slash season 10, season X uh, for our events.
Joining us for the discussion, we have Carrie Schultz, the president of Reading Musical Foundation. For almost a century, this Reading Musical Foundation has been advocating for and advancing music appreciation in Berks County. Annually, the foundation provides over $200,000 in funding to community grants, arts programs, and about $100,000 in scholarship money to local music students. And also joining us, I'm excited to say, is Justin Heimbecker. He's the new executive director of Berks Arts. Since 1969, Berks Arts' mission has been to inspire, engage, and unite our community through arts, education, collaboration, and presentation. Each year, Berks Arts presents multiple community music festivals, including Berks Jazz Fest. Uh, and they also award more than $150,000 to artists and arts organizations in Berks, Lancaster, and Schuylkill counties. Thank you so much, both of you, for being here with us today. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So I'm, we're really bringing you back, your organizations back, for a, uh, a discussion, a continued discussion of COVID-19 and how it's impacting the arts in Berks County. I just want to ask, how has the resurgence of the virus and um, the development of these new variants, how has that impacted planning for local arts organizations who sort of saw the light at the end of the tunnel um, and now uh, they're faced with, uh, you know, going, going backwards instead of forwards. So how, how is this impacting those organizations? And that could be for either of you. Well, Justin, if you want to start, I mean, you are you are right in the middle of you know one of the the largest events you know in our community here that that happens on an annual basis. So if you want to jump in and kind of give the the now approach, I can then you know add chime in afterwards with kind of what's happening over the next couple of months with the other organizations. Yeah, of course, of course. So like you mentioned, we're we're right in the middle of uh, of the Berks Jazz Fest. We just finished up weekend number one. You can see the aftermath behind me. And um, it's, it, you know, fortunately, it's going great. Everybody's having a wonderful time. Crowds are happy. Artists are happy. Everything's great. In early mid-July, like you said, the light at the end of the tunnel was there. We were feeling really optimistic. And then, of course, the past few weeks, uh, you know, things, things definitely took a, a little bit of a shift. And so the way we approached it was that we have several obligations. We have, you know, our, obviously our legal liability obligation uh, we have our moral ethical obligation, and then we have our relationship obligation to artists, volunteers, fans, with a, sort of an underlying tone of do the right thing. Whatever that may mean in that moment for that audience, for that constituency, do the right thing. Be able to look yourself in the mirror at night, lay your head on your pillow at night, and know that you feel like you took all of the reasonable, responsible, rational steps without overreacting, without underreacting. And uh, after weekend one, I'm, I'm really proud of what we did and I'm really proud of how everybody responded. Uh, again, from board to volunteers, to staff, to artists, to vendors, to fans, uh, it was a great weekend. We had you know, not one issue and we feel like we've, we've found that way to not overreact and not underreact and let everybody make their decisions based on their individual situations. Justin, can I ask, so the unique thing about Berks Jazz Fest is it's not just one event and it's not even just one location. So how did you manage and, and balance going to different venues and having you know different artists and what their requests and what their recommendations or policies might be for whether it's masking or social distancing? Um, you know, how how did all of that kind of pan out for you? And how did you how did you manage it? 
Yeah, it's a good question. Um, it, again, it's been a dance. And, and so what we did is we said, if nobody were to tell us what to do or, or request anything of us, here's our baseline template policy and protocol. We also agreed as a group that if an artist had a special request, we were going to honor that request. So if, uh, for example, if masks are uh, required if you're unvaccinated or uh, encouraged if you are vaccinated, but an artist comes in and says, I want everybody backstage to either be wearing a mask or, or to be vaccinated, we've honored those requests if they had something special. Um, we also took a, a concerted effort, you know, even in hospitality to not have buffets as much as possible and have individually wrapped items and, you know, not a bowl of chips, but an individual bag of chips and wraps. And, and uh, it really touched every aspect of what we do. Uh, and Carrie related to, to the venues, you know, we are guests in all of these places and we recognize that. We sort of come in and invade their space for, uh, you know, a night or a week. And we need to respect the, that they're working under different guidelines as well. And everybody's got their threshold and, and their decisions. So for example, we had a, an event at the Miller Center, a beautiful venue this past weekend and masks were encouraged. And starting today, the 16th, masks are now required in the building. So partway through the festival, we have a shift at one venue due to that facility's rules and requirements connected to the college. And so of course, we're gonna respect that and we're gonna honor that and communicate that. Um, and, and, and you know that's the best you can do in this situation, right? Is, is try to be respectful of everybody's decisions and, and policies and be a good guest, be a good neighbor and do the responsible thing. Excellent. So I know, Chris, kind of in your response of, of or your question and how the other organizations are preparing for the season with changes to what's happening, you know, uh, nationally and, and here in Pennsylvania. Uh, and speaking to the organizations, what, you know, I had heard is that many of them do share similar venues or, uh, you know, the, the venue style is the same, whether, you know, we have a lot of organizations who perform in churches. We have you know, a lot of organizations that perform at WCR Center for the Arts, Miller Center for the Arts. And up until you know, basically a couple days ago, right? Uh, many of them had very similar policies in place when it came to masking and uh, social distancing. And we were seeing that the organizations were very much you know, in, in tune with what Justin has been doing with Berks Jazz Fest, where they have their baseline policies, uh, but then they're, you know, following the, the venue policies as well. Uh, a lot of organizations have mandated vaccines for their musicians um, to, in order to perform as part of the group, uh, as well as you know, staff and, and people who might assist with the productions. Um, but what we have also seen the organizations prepare for starting last year was that if changes needed to be made throughout the season, they were ready to do that. So they planned, you know, their music programming that they put in place, you know, they could do it with a 60 piece or a 35 piece ensemble. So that way they're hoping to have 60 musicians on the stage, but if they have to limit that because of social distancing, they can still perform the same piece just with fewer people on the stage. Um, we're also seeing a lot of organizations continue to do some sort of live streaming option or recording the piece, planning to, to share it later. And the reason for that is twofold. We're seeing them do that because they know that there might be people who are still not comfortable coming to that kind of setting, and they want to make sure that they're able to provide access to their concerts. 
And then also if anything were to change, they're prepared to, you know, still be able to, to get that music out to the masses, even if they can't have, you know, a full concert or, or any kind of concert with, you know, the public there, uh, which a lot of organizations have been doing over the last year. Have there been protocols um, by other organizations uh, specifically about concert attendance, or is it just really regulating, uh, you know, vaccines, mandating vaccines for performers? That's what I've been hearing. Um, and it seems as if most organizations, actually, I should say all the organizations that I've talked to have pointed to Pennsylvania Department of Health and CDC regulations and policies and mandates as what they're following. No one is really doing anything different. So since Pennsylvania is allowing for, you know, the return of, of full attendance at, you know, indoor venues, the organizations are following that, that recommendation and they're not limiting the, the audiences. Okay. Um, I did hear there's some special events that might be going on in the near future where people who attend that event uh, will be asked to show proof of, of vac vaccination or they'll have to take a, a rapid COVID test. Um, but that has more to do with the, the demographics of people being served that is kind of an at-risk demographic. Um, but I don't think that's been fully decided on at this point. It's, you know, it, it's something that that's being discussed whether or not it can be enforced, um, you know, and, and kind of how to put the protocol around that to make that happen. But I haven't heard anything along those lines for concerts um, or any sort of like large scale event that, that we would see from our organization. But yeah, like Justin had said, the Miller Center is the first one here that's kind of come back and, and said that it's a, a, a mass requirement to be, you know, to, to, for their um, for their events. But I think that also has to do with RAC, right, Justin, that it's a, it's a RAC uh, whole campus Policy, exactly. Not just the Miller Center for the Arts. Exactly. Yep. So, but I know, like for for us, you know, at, at RMF, it's kind of being this collective advocate for for music appreciation. What we're hoping to see is not have drastic differences between organizations and venues between what's allowed and what's expected. I mean, we want everyone to feel comfortable returning to live music, and if one facility is saying one thing, you know, over another, or one organization is saying one thing over another, it might just lead to a whole lot of confusion and keep everyone away until we're able to collectively kind of figure this out. So I was very pleased to hear that the, the organizations really are in alignment and our audiences, and we share a lot of audiences. So a lot of people in Berks County, you know, who go to your concert, Chris, are going to the symphony and going to Jazz Fest. And it's not going to be that different weekend to weekend, you know, venue to venue, organization to organization. Everyone's going to kind of get used to, to what's being expected and, and be prepared for that. Mm -hmm. I think to the schools, right? Once the schools reopen and once the schools kind of put their line in the sand of what's, you know, whether or not all kids are going to be, you know, having to wear a mask or mask or optional, like once all that gets sorted out, I think the grown-ups are going to feel a lot more comfortable about everything. I think so much is up in the air right now that everyone's feeling a little frazzled at the moment. Just having said that, I know most of us, when we're looking for uh, what's available in the county, um, we certainly turn to social media. Um, many organizations such as Jazz Fest, you can easily go on and see um, what is coming up as far as the performances. Um, do you find that all of the social media that is on there for this particular area addresses the protocol as far as how they are going to come into the venue um, other than just saying, this is when the concert is. And then once they show up, they get a feel 
for the atmosphere that they're going to be sitting and participating in. I can I can probably jump in, you know, a little bit because we've been dealing with this in, in real time uh, with the Jazz Fest, you know, <laughs> present right now. Um, we, as far as our messaging and trying to make sure that we don't create confusion, we made the, the decision to push everything to our website so that if there were updates and changes, it was always being updated and changed and directed to that URL because there was always the risk if somebody had a screenshot of an old outdated policy on Facebook or Instagram that they would show up and say, well, this is what you said, here it is in my phone. And we would say, well, you should have gone here. So we've tried to do our very best to say, please go here to read and then keep that updated. And, and you know, even when there's an update, just say updates here and link to it so that the URL is always there. The content's always, you know, relevant, up to date for that. I mean, are, are you going to get 100% of people to, to be 100% current on 100% of the, the, the protocols? No. Um, and that's why you have customer service as best you can. And you try to be human as best you can and, and you know, be reasonable. But um, we made that specific effort to try to avoid confusion. Um, and I, I think, again, I'm really proud of what we've done. We have a great team managing all of that. And, uh, and, I, and I think we've, we've minimized the confusion as much as we possibly can, at least to date. I'm going to knock on wood because we have seven days left. I, that's a great point, Scott. Um, and I know, and again, it's kind of based organization by organization. So we have Reading Symphony performs at the Performing Arts Center. So they're following you know, the SMG guidelines on that and they have been posted there was just an article in the paper about it you know in, in the last couple of days of what all the new policies at SPAC will be um, and not just COVID related but security related as well there's been some adjustments but then we have other organizations like Opus One and Ferks and Pineta that over the next couple of months they're going to be in multiple venues so they're kind of you know I, I would imagine they'll take approach very similar to what you saw with Ferks Jazz Fest where it's all being funneled to one place rather than you know, trying to, to keep everyone or, or make one rule right now, knowing that there's multiple venues involved. So there's just too many pieces moving around for them to, to make any sort of final and formal announcement of, of what is and what isn't for three months from now. Right, so I think those are all good points and great points. But what the summation really is, is everything is sort of up in the air. <laughs> that's the answer. And, you know, that's the answer for everything right now. And I, and I totally get it. And um, that's the world we're living in. Um, what are expectations really moving forward? Like going into maybe not this coming season, because I know that everything is still up in the air. But we, we had mentioned in the previous segment, um, in the previous episode, that there was this new normal that was created. What does that new normal look like for us in the arts? Maybe not next season, but maybe five years from now or you know, going forward. What, what policies do you think that we're putting in place now um, are gonna have a lasting impact on the arts? And even for you, we had mentioned music students in schools. What do you what do you think these um, these things that we're doing now these actions that we're taking now what implications do you do you think they will have for future arts musicians in schools and for artists in the, in in public? Um, I will take the the music question. Um, you know, and again, I think it's really it's so it's so hard to speak to any of this, right? Because we we just don't know. Um, and and in a perfect world, 
you know, there is somewhat of a quote unquote return to normal where we have hundreds of kids, you know, doing concerts on one stage together. Um, but I, I think if anything, you know, it's, it's not so much a policy, but it's more of this, we always talk about the skills of musicians are the skills of life, right? But, you know, if, as you build your skills to become a musician, you are learning things that will make you successful in, in any field at all. And certainly musicians have had to be adaptable over this last year. And we've had to, you know, be able to say, okay, well, this was a plan. It's not gonna quite work like that. What do we need to do to tweak it so we can still get our craft and our art out there? So for music students, if they're able to learn that skill in fourth grade and carry it through to 12th grade, imagine how much more advanced they're going to be over their peers when they head off into college and to the real world and into whatever their future holds for them, whether it's music related or not. Uh, and I think, you know, we're also seeing creative people are, you know, go into the arts. And so the music teachers in this community are some of the most creative people I know. And they've been able to adjust their programs and tweak their programs so the kids are still able to learn. We've had teachers learn, you know, or we've had teachers teach first year instrumental lessons over Zoom. I mean, just imagine that. Imagine trying to show, you know, how you hold and the fingering on a flute when it's the mirror image, you know, when you're Zoom to Zoom, you know, but, but they figured it out. They did, it. you know, and Chris, certainly your work with singing, you know, and, and having the, computer interfere with one true voice to the next true voice. Um, so again, I, I'm not, I can't speak to what policies are gonna be created, you know, when it comes to, to public education, you know, around all of this, but I do know whatever policies are created, our kids and our teachers are gonna figure it out. And we're gonna be able to make sure that, you know, kids in our community, kids across Pennsylvania still have access to, to high quality, high level music. music. Uh, yeah, Carrie, those are excellent points. And I, you know, one, one word that was in my mind that you just said was the word access. And, and I think what the past year and a half has done is it's raised our collective awareness of access issues and also access opportunities. Uh, you know, for example, when you require everybody to go to Zoom, it means that that family has to have a device and the capability to get into Zoom. And they might need a space for learning in their home, which some families have and some may not. And, uh, you know, for a quiet place to, to actually focus and, and learn. And I think this past year, year and a half has made us very sensitive and aware of the fact that everybody that comes into that classroom or into that group is coming from a different background and a different set of circumstances and a different environment. And so on one side, the technology piece provides so much ability and opportunity if we do our due diligence to provide that access and make sure that no one's left behind in that process. Uh, because how much, how much great art and music have we been exposed to in the past year and a half for free, just by putting it up on the TV uh, anywhere in the world that normally you would have to get there in person or pay a big price for that ticket. So it's been there for those of us who have that access and we have to make sure that we, we increase that access anywhere we can. And then I think on the flip side, there's nothing like being in the room. And I, I have, and I think a lot of us have a newfound appreciation that maybe we've taken for granted for our entire lives of being in the room and experiencing that energy. I, you know, I was a part of, you know, pieces of 20 or 25 concerts this weekend. And it's just remarkable to be in the room, feeling the energy, hearing those sounds, smelling the smells, you name it. And, and there's nothing like it and nothing can replace that. 
So I think there's the there's two sides of this coin where the technology can provide so much, and we have to be careful that we don't um, we don't make that a division and and a, and a barrier and exclusive thing, and also newfound appreciation for being together. So I think if we can navigate those two things at the same time, you know, the the, the future becomes bright. And like Kerry said, with policies, I don't know. Will people wear masks forever in some environments? Maybe. Airports, trains, possibly, concerts, possibly. Um, but I think it's just raised our awareness in some areas where maybe we, we had become blind or numb to the to, to the things that, that existed. So um, I'm excited. And I think too, like, I mean, on the musician side of it, you know, if, if we all had a magic wand and, and could you know, quote unquote, fix some problems, I think this last 18 months has been so hard on our working artists, you know, our working musicians. And we've come to realize just how much we depend on them, not just for, for entertainment value, but for so much more in our lives. And if something like this pandemic, you know, puts fear in people's minds of choosing music or choosing art as a profession, collectively as a community, what can we do to make sure that we're not losing really good artists to fields where, you know, they're not gonna, they're not gonna get that personal satisfaction. They're not gonna be able to share their gifts with other people. Um, so what can we put in place to make sure that, you know, if, if the bottom would fall out again, you know, that we're not losing so many people and that we're not hurting so many people like what we've seen over the last 18 months. So, and, and I mean, I have some concerns now and maybe Justin, you see it where musicians who are now able to get back to work are, they're burning both ends, you know, they're going, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then, the, you know, teaching during the week and they're not giving themselves any break because they're so scared that if they're going to lose work again, you know, they're trying to make sure that they're prepared. And so it, it's, you know, and you don't want to see musicians living a life like that. You know, everyone deserves to have that work-life balance. Um, so, you know, I, I would love to see, you know, some policy, you know, public policy put in place that protects some of our working musicians and working artists. Totally agree. Well, that's great. Everything you said was fantastic. Justin, the future is bright is what I got from, from that. That was a nice little quote. Um, and Carrie, talking about the um, just the condition of working musicians, I think is something we don't really talk enough about. And thank you both for joining us here today. It was a great discussion. Um, I hope we can have more discussions just like this on another topic that doesn't involve COVID-19. <laughs> It'd be great to have you back and talk about something else other than COVID-19, okay? <laughs> so thank Agreed. you both for joining us. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. At the conclusion of each episode of Octavo, we'd like to recognize someone in the community who is having a positive impact on our artistic community and fulfilling Opus One's creed. Together, we can make Reading sing. Since today's episode focuses on COVID-19's effect on the arts, we are happy to welcome Wes Sapola from Burke's Weekly, an independent locally owned digital, news digital newspaper in Reading. Wes covers local news, 
business, and culture. He has recently written articles about the Reading Symphony, Reading Theater Projects, and Burke Symphonita. Greetings, Wes. Thank you for having or coming on today, I should say. Thank you so much for having me. Just going to start right off by asking you um, just a couple of questions here. Um, first and foremost, please tell us a little bit about your role at Burke's Weekly and a little bit more about the digital newspaper. This is strange because usually I'm the one who's asking the questions. I'm a freelance journalist who writes for a handful of local publications, including Burke's Weekly. And ever since the tragic departure of Susan L. Pena from the Reading Eagle, there have been no music reviews here in Berks County. And that's sad because I feel like someone needs to get the word out that these incredible arts organizations exist. And as a reviewer and critic, I believe that my reviews of the concerts have to be as transformative and thoughtful and as entertaining as the concerts themselves. I want to give you the experience of the concert through the eyes of someone who hopefully is observant of everything that they're seeing and hearing. Very good. Of course, the times that we're currently living in with um, all of our events trying to get back up into running some type of normal, um, what precautions have you uh, witnessed with any of the productions that you have attended? Have the protocols been followed or have they been enforced? Do they even find themselves effective? What more could be done? I feel like they're doing everything that's possible. Right now, what I'm seeing is masks and social distancing and I have no problem with that. I mean, as long as we are finally back together in person, seeing live music being performed often in a beautiful or historic venue somewhere in the county, I'm happy. I'm fine with doing anything that it takes in order to get us all back in person. And clearly so are the arts organizations and musical groups here in Berks. Now, having said that, in your opinion, is the face of the mounting numbers um, of cases that are increasing and hospitalizations and the deaths um, that we're hearing about currently, do you think audience members, are they ready to return to in-person events? Judging by the attendance at the Burke Sinfonietta concert last week, I believe that they are absolutely. When the Reading Symphony Orchestra opened again in May with their first in-person concert since March of 2020, there were, I think, as many people in there as there could be given the limited capacity of the time. People are ready to go back to in-person music, yeah, in-person music. And they have no problem with wearing masks or social distancing if that's what's necessary to accomplish that. Now, since the changing of the guard at the Reading Eagle, Burks has been without major coverage on artistic events, as you had said in the beginning, um, for like promotions of concerts, reviews, and et cetera, um, which were considered vital and now have been sorely missed. Do you know if Burks Weekly is committed to taking up the mantle? I think that they absolutely are. It is an independently run digital news service, as you said. And my relationship with them as a freelance writer is simple. I write reviews and then they're published in on the website. I like that now, thanks to the internet, anyone who has an opinion about arts or anything really 
can set up an independent blog and post what they think. You don't need a newspaper anymore. And as tragic as that may be for the uh, institution like the Reading Eagle, it feels good to finally bring something as significant as the art of reviewing music back to this county. Mm -hmm. How do you go about choosing um, what events to go to? Because certainly as we start opening back up again, there are going to be more and more and more events. And um, so far, just being yourself, being one person, um, how are you going to get around to these events? Are you going to have, do you see down the line that you'll have more people helping you? And I'm assuming that we can access this content on Burke's Weekly. If you could just talk a little bit about how we can access that material or somebody can get in contact with you about something that may not be um, on site for people to see. Oh, absolutely. All you have to do to see my work is to go to berksweekly.com and search my name, Wes Cipolla, W-E-S-C-I-P-O-L-L-A. And that's also my email address. If you want to contact me, it's westsapola at gmail.com. I love classical music and I always have. So I'm focused on classical music. And the thing about classical music here in Reading and the Berks County area. It's kind of like that Monty Python sketch with the Judean People's Front and People's Front of Judea. There's so many different music groups and sometimes they have similar names that it can get confusing. You have the Reading Symphony Orchestra, the Reading Choral Society, Opus One Berks Chamber Choir, the Berks Sinfonietta, the Reading Pops, the Reading Philharmonic, the Reading Theater Project, the Reading Civic Theater slash Civic Opera, Burke's Opera Company, I could go on. And I'm just interested not only in classical music, but also live theater and anything that's really avant-garde and unusual. What I love about the music groups and arts groups in Berks County is that they aren't afraid to challenge the Berks County audience. They're not afraid to perform sort of out there classical pieces by living composers, things that are beyond the old war horses, Mozart, Beethoven, et cetera. And I like how our live theater programs and our live theater companies are not afraid to tackle serious and relevant issues with the art that they produce on stage. Christopher, did you have anything else that you would like to, um, to add? No, I think you guys covered it really nicely. It was great. I love just listening. It was wonderful. <laughs> well, Wes, I can't tell you uh, enough how much we truly appreciate you taking your time out today to spend some time with us, um, to enlighten us about exactly what you are doing, not only for us musicians, but also for the people of the Berks County and also surrounding. So again, thank you again. We appreciate it. Once again, it. it's an honor to be on the show. Thank you for getting in contact with me about this. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, that's all the time we have for today. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion and that you join us next month for Opus One Octavo. And remember, together we can make Reading sing. For more information about Opus One, visit our website, www.opusonechamberchoir.com. <laughs>